Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? Buenos dias, bom dia, shalom. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. My name's Dennis Walker, and today we've got the one and only Madison Margolin, newly minted author with the release of her debut book, Exile and Ecstasy. Growing up with Ram Dass and coming of age in the Jewish psychedelic underground, available everywhere. Madison is well known as the co-founder of Double Blind and as a prolific journalist in the psychedelic space, and now an author. And we're gonna get to the bottom of what differentiates a journalist from an author right now, as well as a whole bunch of other very pertinent and relevant conversational topics. This interview was recorded live in Miami at Wonderland Conference two weeks ago, and I hope to continue this conversation in a more in-depth capacity at some point with Madison. But in the meantime, this podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost. Mushroom supplements. M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Go cop some MicroBoost mushroom coffee and tell them I sent you. As always, thanks for listening. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast episode wherever you're listening to it. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa Shalom. What's up? Madison Margolin, congratulations on your book, Exile and Ecstasy. You're on a bit of a tour promoting it. How does it feel right now? Are you celebrating? How do you feel? It feels really surreal. <laughs> you know, I, I've i been working on this book for, you know, more than the last year, you know, unofficially 10 years, un- unofficially my whole life. The book is an accumulation of kind of my, my story in general. Um, and yeah, am I celebrating? I mean, the day my book came out, I flew to Miami for this Wonderland conference and got a drink at a nice hotel. So that was cool, but... Forgot to book an actual celebration. So I do have a book launch and everyone should look that up. So I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've been following your work for a while. And I'm aware that you were in Israel earlier this year and the last year really reconnecting with your ancestral roots. And that's one of the core premises of the book. Can you speak a little bit about your experience going back to Israel and reconnecting with this ancient ancestral connection to Judaism? Yeah, so, you know, I originally went to Israel. First, I did a birthright trip, like, a bunch of people do. I had no idea what I was getting into at that point. I was 20 years old or 19, 20. And I went after college. I moved to Tel Aviv and did a program there. And really my my goal was just to, I don't know, just to like live life. Like I didn't go with any kind of mission. Like it wasn't coming from a religious impulse. It wasn't coming from a Zionist impulse. It was coming just from sheer intuition and curiosity. And, you know, when I was there, I just felt different. Like I felt happier I felt lighter I felt you know more connected and I I was like okay like I'm really like falling in love with this place like I I never thought I was going to be the kind of person who was obsessed with with Israel like I did not grow up in a family that talked about Israel or cared about Israel like it just was not a conversation piece my mom is from New York that is the homeland (laughs) like you know no you know my family's just like not they're not Zionist in that way um I mean, whatever, I guess my parents have evolved, but um, yeah. And then I recently I wrote the book in Israel, too. And, and so I was in Tel Aviv, which is a very secular city. And then I it became a home to me. And like over the years after after living there, I went to grad school and was in New York for a long time. And I'd always like go back and forth to Israel and was developing my relationship with it and ended up in Sfat, which is sort of this mystical city um, in northern Israel in the mountains. It's the, officially known as the birthplace of Kabbalah. Um, it's also, you know, there's four holy cities officially, and they each are according to the elements. So like Jerusalem, for instance, is fire. Sfat is air, and I, I'm an air sign, and I really connect to it. 
And, you know, it really just got me thinking about, you know, again, like, why do I feel good in this place? Why do I feel better than I feel elsewhere? Like, that's complicated. You can't, in certain places, you can't even admit that, you know, like, there's a lot of political stuff that comes along with talking about a relationship and a connection and an ancestral heritage to a place that is so fought over. But you also can't deny a feeling. So I'm still very much trying to figure that out and what it means for me. And, you know, I think a huge thing is really just embodiment. And if I can be in a place that helps me feel more in my body. And again, when I'm there, I just feel like, I don't know, I just feel way more embodied. Like, I think there's something to that. And it's, you know, I have easier acts, like I'm just being there, it's easier for me to tap in, it's easier for me to pray, it's easier for me to like, feel kind of like the hand of God through, you know, you could call it serendipity in Hebrew, you could call it hashkacha, like just sort of the way things magically manifest. Um, and again, this is all controversial because, you know, I know that there are people who also have a, a, a homeland type claim to Israel and can't necessarily go there, you know, like, or that there are conditions there that are just so um, disgraceful to humanity that for me to like go and say it's so magical while at the same time, like the lowest things of, of life are happening is is complicated and it's a lot to hold, but I think it's also the complexity of life there that is so fascinating and gives me so much that I want to give back to and expand, like expand on and learn about and help, help fix. You know, there's this concept in Judaism of tikkun olam of like repairing the world, and I think it starts in the, in the world's most uh, uh, blood-stained region currently. That's hugely self-aware of you, and I applaud you for going into that. And it's something I don't shy away from the difficult, more charged topics. And you're right at the epicenter of that in a lot of ways right now, especially with the release of this book. One of the other through lines in your work is about plant technologies, is about spiritual entheogenic plants and the connection between psychedelics or entheogens and Judaism. I grew up as a devout Christian, and when I first had my cannabis and mushroom experiences, there was a lot of overlap with my religious conditioning and thinking about the burning bush and thinking about the region of Canaan and so on and so forth. And I was over in Israel and Palestine in 2022 and spent a fair amount of time on both sides of the wall. And one thing I've heard you talk about is the acacia plant and that there was arguably a, a fair amount of use of this plant historically. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the sacramental entheogenic traditions in Judaism? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, acacia is a DMT-containing plant that's native to the Middle East. And it was, it's said that the Jews learned acacia extraction technology from the Egyptians. So that, actually, they weren't even Jews at that point. They were the tribe, right? The Hebrew tribe. They didn't have the official religion or Torah or book yet. Um, but, okay, fine. So there's, you know, theories that, oh, the burning bush was acacia or this and that. There's also... Um, you know, Rabbi Harry Rosenberg talks about this, and he's one of the speakers here at this conference right now. But so on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, it's like the holiest day in the year. Um, the high priest of Jerusalem would go into, or doesn't, you know, the high priest of the temple, and you know, in Jerusalem or any other, anywhere else, I guess, too, would go into um, this chamber called the Holy of Holies, and 
uh, lock himself in there and it had to be hot boxed with incense and like the smoke of this incense and it was the incense was a very particular blend and it said that cannabis was used in it as part of the smoke razor and the incense was burning on the coals of acacia as well and so again the idea is this priest is having an entheogenic experience on the holiest day of the year where he's atoning on behalf of the whole Jewish people. And again, that's just one of the most prime examples. Um, you know, and you, the other thing to look at is the use of wine in Judaism as a sacrament and, you know, as, as the ultimate like original plant medicine. And that was, it's used in so many different ways. And if you think about certain holidays that we even, you know, celebrate today, like Passover, it's basically a plant medicine ceremony with wine. You know, you have four cups throughout the night. <laughs> like there, there are other situations in life, ayahuasca ceremonies and whatever, where people are also going up and having a multiple number of cups throughout the night in a ceremonial seder. And by seder, I mean like an order of the way things go in the night. So yeah, that's just a few examples. So you've been a very public figure in the psychedelic renaissance, as some people call it, right? And you launched Double Blind. That's how I first became aware of your work. And then it feels like over the last couple of years, you've become a little bit more reclusive, more focused on writing. What has your experience been like being at the vanguard of the mainstreaming of psychedelics from when you first started until today? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the psychedelic space, I guess you could say, in a, in a psychedelic community of the many. Um, you know, basically my upbringing, my dad and Ram Dass were good friends. And so a lot of the people I grew up with as family friends had all had their own psychedelic experiences and integrated that and through spiritual practice, often influenced by Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know, whatever it may be. So that was that's to start. And, you know, psychedelic culture, as it had been presented to me, was not the industry that we have today. It was more you know, rootsy, weird, <laughs> trippy, like, you know, a little, like my, my dad's house was a little bit of a freak show. Like there would always be random hippies wandering in and out. Like there was, there was always something. And, you know, the people who I grew up with, for instance, would not be at this conference today. It's just like totally not the vibe, but like, like I'm talking about like Venice Beach hippies and stuff like that. So, you know, you know, and growing up, you know, I guess so that's like that was really my foundation for like psychedelic awareness and culture. And then, you know, I started out doing journalism about 10 years ago with cannabis and then psychedelics. And again, the community used to feel more it used to feel more community. It used to be like, oh, it's like you do acid, I do acid. Like, like it would be like that wink, wink, like we've been on the same page before. We have this kindred experience. And so that brings us together. And what I'm seeing now is just like people coming in who, you know, not necessarily have been, you know, started doing psychedelics when it was less controversial. And so it changes the, the sort of like meaningful rebellion of it in a way. Um, which is so much part of the experience. I mean, I remember my original, my very early psychedelic trips, I was still getting past like drug war crap where I was like, felt, I would sometimes like, like, uh, you know, have these like mini, like flip out for a minute and be like, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. And it's like that, like, you know, society's telling me I'm doing something wrong. Like, am I okay? Am I doing this? Like, like I would, I would get into these like, like little trips over it. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like I, 
am I seriously like internalizing like what the drug war wants me to internalize? And it's taken a lot of psychedelic work and my own work to like get past that. But now, you know, no one, uh, the, I wouldn't say that people in the industry today have that type of um, counterculture awareness and vibe. And part of me is a little sad about it because the counterculture is just more fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, the psychedelics are becoming more mainstream and they're starting to fit into the systems that we already have in mainstream society of healthcare and pharmaceuticals and mental health care as it's, you know, been presented and nice branding and marketing and like everything is very neat and tidy and you know, in a way counter to what the psychedelic experience is all, it's all about. It's not always neat and tidy. So, you know, I've said this in various interviews where it's just like, how can we, rather than mainstream psychedelics, make psychedelics, um, make the mainstream more psychedelic, sorry, how, rather than make psychedelics more mainstream, how can we make the mainstream more psychedelic? And it doesn't mean we need to make the mainstream like messy and chaotic and whatever, but can we apply psychedelic thinking and ethos and value system to the systems that we have at play in order to make it so that people actually don't need to be running to psychedelics all the time, but that the systems reflect psychedelic integration and ethos and lifestyle. And then we're just growing up in sort of the climate of psychedelic consciousness. Super pertinent and important observation in that if we don't carefully move forward collectively, then psychedelics could actually exacerbate and amplify the inequities in society, which is what many people hoped they would disrupt. And I know that there's a lot of different stakeholders and you can't keep everybody happy all the time. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. And you mentioned recently that this is your first time publishing a book. You're a first time author, but you're a seasoned journalist. How do those two approaches differ when you're writing? When you're investigating a story, you're, you're a journalist, or when you're writing a book, how do you approach the workflow differently? Yeah, so a book is, I realize, about my voice. Um, and that's something I've always shied away from. As a journalist, as a reporter, the idea is to amplify other people's voices and report on what other people are saying about a particular issue at hand. And so the idea is to put as little of myself into it as possible aside from having good writing that's coherent and engaging and whatever but it's not about me right and a book on the other hand you know even though there is reporting in there and there is journalistic component in there it's you know this is not like i'm not writing some like historical account like i was the the point of the book or as it evolved turned into this memoir and I, it wasn't initially like that you know i i have written i have written third person especially in the beginning and i started to notice that i couldn't it wasn't ethical for me to always write in the third person because i had a direct relationship to the things that i was writing about and so especially as a Jew, as someone who does psychedelics, as someone who's therefore writing and reporting on Jewish psychedelia, you know, I wanted to admit my bias and by in order to do that, or my method for admitting bias or admitting my um, relation, my personal relationship to the story was by creating first person stories. And so from that point on, it's, I started to realize there were elements of gonzo journalism that were starting to 
take place in my relationship to my work and my my life in some ways became my work like i've always said i wanted i went into journalism so i could like make my life my living and using the things that i just find so fascinating and that kindle my heart as my muse for what i want to write about and so you know it, it the book at least is way more creative it's way more personal it's again my editors really the points where i was like copy pasting from my articles and putting that in my book my editor was like no like i want to hear your story <laughs> like that's good stuff but like what was your experience of the thing that you were third person reporting on so i don't know if that answers the question but it's a great answer the gonzo journalism is where i've landed i can't be an objective journalist and i realize that's my blessing and my curse i suppose but i really appreciate especially as trust and in media institutions seems to be imploding and there's a lot of skepticism around media narratives gonzo journalism seems to be a nice response to that where you find a character you trust and connect with and you say i want to see the world through the lens that you bring and especially in the age of ai journalism and content creation having that very human angle i think in some ways is very valuable so gonzo journalism i'm, I'm here for it now i'm curious if you could speak a little bit about let me let me take a second to frame the next question here so there's been this great hope in the psychedelic community and beyond that psychedelics can bring peace and healing to different parts of the world. And there's been direct studies conducted with Lior Roseman, right? And Rick Doblin has been very involved and outspoken about this, about hopefully psychedelics bringing some sense of reconciliation and diplomacy and peace to the Swana region and to Israel and to Palestine, etc. How do you feel right now? in the scheme of things, are you an eternal optimist? How do you feel about that assertion that psychedelics may actually bring about some measure of better communication and a hope for peace in that region? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm optimistic that things will be okay eventually. <laughs> um, you know, in a world where we can transcend time, they are already okay. <laughs> Uh, sorry, maybe that's like too trippy for the audience. No, I got trippers in the audience. Yeah, you know, it's beyond time. It's everything's okay beyond time. But anyways, um, so yeah, I was, I'm in the middle actually of writing a story that is specifically about the um, Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca together um, in, you know, this, this study that looks at it from a, Sorry, let me, can I rephrase yeah, that? Yeah, I'm in the middle of writing a story right now about Israelis and Palestinians who participated in ayahuasca circles together in Spain. And I interviewed the people who were at the head of the study and, and who were gathering the participants. And I do really believe in the idea of psychedelics for peace in the Middle East or other conflict um, regions. Now, looking at the limitations of research like this is a the people who are doing it are self-selecting b the reality is that not everybody in israel and palestine are going to get access to the psychedelic treatment that they could probably benefit from so what do you do with that information you know like is it what's the what's the point of talking about it you know and again i i have so many friends who say let's put mdma in the water supply or acid or whatever and yeah i and theoretically i believe in that um but 
what I've come to try to, what I, how I've tried to reconcile both my philosophical belief in it versus the realistic situation that it's not necessarily going to happen is taking, is making the psychedelics not about the substances themselves. Meaning to say that if we can apply psychedelic thinking and um, the ability to hold multiple truths at once rather than it be mutually exclusive, which is what is creating conflict, right? And if you look at the, the conflict on a theoretical level, it's like the truth of, you know, Jews saying this is our homeland and Palestinians saying this is our homeland. And those truths don't have to be in conflict with one another. It can be two truths. And that's oversimplifying the conflict. It's not even just about that. So we don't have to go there per se. But, you know, A, it's like using expanded thinking. B, it's taking a trauma-informed lens and applying that to the ways in which we conceive of quote unquote solutions or conceive of what the narrative is altogether. And so if you look at the role of trauma in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the way that trauma promotes terrorism and promotes um, you know, inhumane policy decisions and promotes just like alienation between the quote unquote sides of this conflict, like that's huge, right? And so like really it should be a war on trauma first and foremost, as much as it is a war between Israel and Hamas or, you know, whatever the, the conflict du jour is. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, like I said, for the, for the outside world peering in on this, it's abstract. And a lot of people, this is like a super hot topic, you know, for better and for worse. And for the people in in the region, I'll call it in the land. I think that's kind of how the sacred activists talk about it is the land because it's so con it's so controversial to call it anything else. Um, uh, you could call it the holy land or whatever. But like, you know, there is a there is an element of embodiment, right? Like, what is it to like actually be at home? And I think I I wrote this in like a, an Instagram post when my book came out. Is like my book deals a lot with home as like a as a theme. You know, like coming home to yourself, coming home to your body, going on a psychedelic trip, and like so much of the trip feels like you're actually just arriving home when once the once it wears off and you're like oh like I'm back in my mundane consciousness and that actually feels so good, um, and. Again, the conflict in Israel and Palestine is also about home. It's like, whose home is it? And like people are like the way it's playing out, like Hamas has kidnapped people and they want to go home and people were massacred in their homes and Gazans are now displaced from their homes because Gaza is being blown up and people are dying. And that's like their home on earth, right? Like or the, the home of the soul on earth. And, you know, I like someone, a friend of mine who lives out there in uh, Tel Aviv, he wrote on Facebook something like, I just want to go home. And it's like, what does that even mean? And so part of psychedelic journeying is about kind of reassociating with our home on a spiritual level. And I think it would be really um, useful in talking about the conflict to look at it beyond the binary of politics and identity politics and 
looking at looking at more spiritual components that are impacting the way that people are acting in this war. Sorry, I'm trying to use really careful language. So expanded thinking, you nailed it. I think it's so important. And thank you for diving so deeply into it because it's such a difficult issue to talk about, but it seems to be the issue that needs to be talked about. And I'm a firm advocate of building better communication systems and platforms, which I think psychedelics and expanded thinking factors into. And we're not quite there yet, but it's nice to know that there's a few optimists in the room. So thank you again for sharing that. I could talk to you for hours, but I know you're doing back to back to back to back interviews and you've got more tomorrow and you've got a book tour. So let's wrap this up by hearing about where people can find the book, where they can look, where they can connect with you and what's your parting shot for the audience today? Uh, yeah, so you can find me at my website, madisonmargolin.com, M-A-D-I-S-O-N-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-N. And um, on Instagram, Madison Margolin, all of that. And the book is on Amazon. It's on my personal website. It's called Exile and Ecstasy. Um, and my parting shot is that, you know, I encourage everyone to just like uh, live a psychedelic life. And that doesn't necessarily mean a life where you're taking psychedelics all the time, but a life that reflects that you've had these experiences. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.